0: The scripture reading today is from Luke 10, 38 through 42. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted by much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. For a number of years, uh, I served on uh, the executive board of a church planning organization in our denomination. And uh, I enjoyed doing that. And one of our regular priorities was planning this meeting that we would have twice a year that was intended to train and equip church planters for the work that God had called them to. And for this particular upcoming meeting... Uh, One of the other pastors on the board suggested that instead of doing a leadership council or talk about strategy, that we take all the church planners to Colorado, along with the executive board, for a silent retreat. A silent retreat. And I thought, that's got to be the easiest thing in the world to lead. A silent retreat, you don't have to do anything, just sit there. And this person said, the goal of this would just, you know, to be with the Lord. To be with the Lord through prayer and through his word and to be quiet before him. And, you know, when that idea was suggested, a couple of these, you know, type A control freak church planners, um, they had some questions. On, and one of the questions was, you know, shouldn't we be giving the church planners some useful training? That was my question. I admit it. Um, others asked, what else can we include on this silent retreat to, you know, actually help them? To help them, you know, develop their core teams and a strategy. Or can we pause the retreat maybe, like halfway through? and talk, (laughs) and maybe have a workshop on leadership or something like that, Uh, and I got to admit, as I read this story on Monday morning of this past week, that was the first experience of my own life that came to mind, and it was convicting to me. It was convicting that I was the person asking most of those questions, and it convicted me because I realized that so much of my life, and I, I would imagine so much of our lives cumulatively, if we're believers, is mixed up with doing good stuff for God, being busy for Jesus, and not really ever doing anything just to be with Jesus. That example from being in that board meeting reminded me that I prioritize, typically in my life, getting things done for Jesus over being with Jesus. You know, I don't know if you're anything like me, but I suspect you are, and I know some of you are. Some of you are actually much worse than me. (laughs) If you've been a Christian for a while, um, I would bet that your tendency is to be more like Martha in this story than to be like Mary. And that's why I think that this story from Luke's gospel can be so formative. It can be really formative for our own lives as disciples of Jesus. If you're not yet a Christian, or if you're exploring faith, or if you're skeptical, then I think this story can help you as well. It can be instructive about what it truly means to commit to being a disciple of Jesus. So this is another meal with Jesus. That's what we're looking at this fall. Every time we're looking at these stories in Luke, Jesus is either going to a meal or at a meal or telling a story about a meal or leaving a meal. Here, Jesus is invited into the home of two of his really good friends, these two sisters, Mary and Martha. You might remember them from John's gospel. They have a brother named Lazarus whom Jesus raises from the dead in John chapter 11, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And this meal falls in the middle of a section in Luke in which Jesus is through various means, teaching about the life of a disciple. About the life of a disciple. And so this story really is an object lesson. It's an object lesson for us about what is most important. About what should take top priority in our spiritual lives, in our journeys of faith. So if you're a Christian, you are one of Jesus' disciples. You're called to love and follow and obey Jesus. You're called to form your life around Jesus' life. You're called to form your life around Jesus' word. So how is that done? What is most important in that discipleship project? That's what we're going to look at. Let me summarize the main idea for you like this. Jesus asked for his disciples to be with him and to resist getting distracted from the one necessary thing. Jesus asked his disciples to be with him and to resist getting distracted from the one necessary thing. So let's look at these two ladies and their stories. Two points. First, Martha's distraction. Second, Mary's discipleship. Kelly read for us, and we can look at the two sisters as the two main characters in the story. Each of them represent for us a different way of following Jesus, a different way of discipleship. One way, Jesus commends the way of Mary. The other way, Jesus gently rebukes the way of Martha. So let's begin by looking at the way of Martha. Interestingly enough, verse 38 tells us that Martha is the one who invites Jesus over. Martha invites Jesus to their house. She's planning to host him, to feed him, to take really good care of him. So Martha busies herself, doesn't she? She busies herself with all of the necessary tasks and important minutiae that would be involved here. Hosting people requires work. But if you have the Messiah coming over, that's a big deal. You want everything to look nice. You want everything to be ready. We think that and we don't have jesus physically in our houses You know in most community group meetings that i've been in over about 15 years now in ministry uh, Something that I see so often is that the people who are hosting community group uh, Will often miss the discussion time or miss the prayer time because they're getting food ready They're in the kitchen or they're doing something else And we typically as people think nothing of that and that tells us how familiar we are with the way of martha But notice how Luke describes Martha. Look in verse 40. Martha was what? Distracted. She was distracted with much serving. Okay, a couple things here. What is Martha distracted from? Well, she's distracted from being with Jesus. That's the whole idea. Mary's being with Jesus, but Martha's not. Martha is attending to herself as a hostess rather than attending to Jesus as her guest. It's not that Martha's opposed to Jesus. Martha's not an enemy of Jesus. She's not one of those people that Jesus talked about in Luke 9 that's ashamed of Jesus' word. No, Martha is just like all kinds of church people. Martha's just like a whole lot of us today. She's not rejected Jesus' words. She's just distracted. Her focus on important tasks distract her from the most important person. Her focus on important tasks distract her from the most important person. And look at how this affects Martha's heart. Look at how it affects her attitude. What's her only comment in the story? Verse 41. Excuse me, verse 40. Lord, you do not care that my sister has left me to serve alone. To serve alone. Tell her to help me. The way she's phrasing that question is expecting a positive answer. In other words, she's like, hey, Jesus... Can't you see who's doing all the work here? That lazy, no good Mary is just sitting on her knees, listening to your sermon, where I'm in here doing all the ministry. I'm in here doing all the work. And she expects Jesus to see what is obvious to her and to do something about it. She says, Jesus, tell Mary to get in here. Martha's thinking, I'm doing all the work. I'm doing all the ministry. I'm doing all the service. Mary, on the other hand, she's not doing anything. And moreover, she says, I'm doing this alone. She feels alone. She feels isolated, left to do everything herself. Have you ever felt that way? You feel that way now? Isn't this story so true? Doesn't it resonate with the human experience? We can all picture this in our minds because we've all been there. Heck, we've probably been there with our own siblings, with our own family. Martha's distracted service is turning her heart inward. It's turning her heart inward. It's disorienting her view of reality. Martha is seeing everything through the prism of her own to-do list. I wonder if that's ever happened to you. Jesus sees all of this. He knows what's happening in Martha's heart. He knows what's happening in Martha's head. And so with great gentleness and with great wisdom, Jesus responds to Martha's demand of him. Verse 41, Martha, Martha, what a gentle way to approach her. Martha, Martha. You're anxious and you're troubled with so many things. You're anxious and you're troubled with many things, but one thing is necessary, and the one necessary thing for Martha is to be with Jesus. That is what Jesus calls the good portion, the real meal. The real meal is time with Jesus, sitting at Jesus' feet. I want you to ask yourself, Ask yourself right now if perhaps the Holy Spirit of God, who's present right here, right now, is speaking to you the exact same words Jesus spoke to Martha that morning. Why are you anxious? Why are you so troubled about so many things? Why have you gotten distracted? Why have you gotten distracted from simply being with me? Are we not like Martha? Listen to this quote from a social commentator that I enjoy reading from time to time. Her name's Bridget Schulte. She writes This is how it feels to live my life scattered, fragmented, and exhausting. I'm always doing more than one thing at a time and feel I never do any one particularly well. I'm always behind and always late. <clears throat> always late. Interesting. Church people, never late, I know, but. I'm always late. I'm always behind. I'm always late with one more thing and one more thing and one more thing to do before rushing out the door. Entire hours evaporate while I'm doing stuff that needs to get done. But once I'm done, I can't tell you what it was I did or why it seems so important. What is it? What is it that's distracting you from being with Jesus, from communion with Jesus, from fellowship with Jesus? It can be any number of things. And the problem is that it's often really good things. Maybe what's distracting you is ministry. Maybe what's distracting you is serving. You know, we do ministry, and if we have time, we might pray. I hate to break it to you, but that's how most pastors operate. That's how we frame our weeks. Many of us think of our discipleship as doing things for God, and we fail to be with God. Too often, our mission for Jesus is not an extension of our communion with Jesus. Too often, our mission for Jesus is not an extension of our communion with Jesus. This summer, we had our denominational annual gathering where all these pastors and elders come together and pray and worship and talk about church stuff. And one evening, we went really, really late into the night. It's like 1130 at at night, and uh, we had a huge agenda the next morning as well. But we start every morning's uh, meetings with a worship gathering where we have the Lord's Supper together, and we hear a sermon, and we sing to Jesus, and we pray. But one of the pastor stood up and raised his hand in front of the whole general assembly and he said, Mr. Moderator, I I would like to make a motion that we cancel the worship service tomorrow morning. I'd like to make a motion that we cancel the worship service tomorrow morning because we just have way too much on the agenda. Thankfully, that motion failed. That motion failed, but it was a great example of how often we think doing things for Jesus takes precedence over being with Jesus. Jesus. You know, most of us, if we're following Christ, most of us, if we're Christian, inside the church, and people even outside the church, we think prayer is just kind of like like if you're running a race and you know that someone fires a gun and fires a blank into the air so that the actual race can start. Prayer is just, you know, firing the gun in the air. So we've kind of sanctified... All of our plans and all of our projects and all of our performances and all of our conversations. We utter a prayer to get things started so that we can legitimize with, you know, nice little Jesus stuff this meeting we're about to have. Prayer is just the gun firing a blank into the air. And so now everyone's free to go his or her own way without thinking about God anymore. So often the good things we try to do for others and for ourselves and for our churches prioritizes doing instead of being prioritizes the way of Martha instead of the way of Mary maybe it's ministry for you maybe it's that you just don't have enough time you just don't have time i mean let me just, in my own life um i try to think about my mornings this week i typically wake up around 6 and i want to be at work by 8 so that's 2 hours and in those 2 hours i have a million things to do uh i try to make my kids lunch each morning i try to eat breakfast i get my coffee well, you know what, I have never one time missed that. <laughs> I somehow found a, find a way, 365 days a year, to make coffee and drink it. All of it. And sometimes a second cup. Okay? So I do that, and uh, I try to exercise, and then I, I like to get a shower and get dressed. That seems to be a necessary, important thing. And then, you know, I check my email, and I look at my calendar for the day. And then sometimes I'll get down on my knees, or I'll sit in a chair, and I'll pray, and I'll read the scripture. And some days I have to stop and get gas in the car or drop off the dry cleaning, etc., etc., etc. But guess what? I hardly ever have time to do all of those things in a given morning. So what gets cut from the list? Prayer. It gets cut often because I don't view it as the most important thing. I'm distracted by my day. Heck, I'm a pastor. I'm serving and working and going. And I miss sitting with Jesus Christ. I've got to go do ministry. I've got to write a sermon. I've got to meet with people. I don't have time to just sit with Jesus. And so in our focus on these things, we forget about the most important person. And our circumstances can overwhelm us. There's a better way. There's a better way that Jesus calls us to here. Can we look at it together? We've seen the way of Martha, and it's all too familiar with so many of us. Let's look at the way of Mary. Mary's discipleship. This story really is like a living, breathing example of uh, what Jesus says in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We'd do well just to read that over and over and over again. Following Jesus, being a disciple, means taking our burdens and our labors and our heavily laden hearts to him and finding rest. Following Jesus means... It means inhaling and exhaling deeply in the Holy Spirit by faith. You know, those of you that may do uh, something like yoga or Pilates or whatever for your workout routines, you know how important breathing is. If you're in a particular move that's intended to stretch you or strengthen you, that's pretty intense. What your instructor will always say is to make sure you sync your movements physically with your breathing. Breathe in, hold your breath while you're in the move, and then breathe out. But Jesus is asking here not to forget, he's asking that we not forget to breathe, to take our breaths in him, and to exhale in him, so that we can live out of his favor and his power. That's what Mary's doing. That's the way of Mary. Luke tells us, verse 39, Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to her teaching. Jesus, Jesus is Mary's clear focus, her main priority, her goal is sitting at the feet of Jesus and she's commended. Jesus says, verse 42, Mary's chosen the good portion and it's not going to be taken away from her. I love that last phrase, it's not going to be taken away from her. I mean, compare the two sisters. Martha is working and slaving and driving herself and pushing herself to prepare this one temporary meal. Mary, however, is focused and present with the Lord. She's pouring her first energies into knowing Jesus, into knowing the true bread of life, into the very word of God, Jesus, who is everlasting and unending. Mary here seems to grasp that the heart of the discipleship life, the heart of the Christian life, is really a love affair. The heart of being a disciple is a love affair with God. It's not a straight edge to try to measure up to. It's not a to-do list for us to accomplish. It is a love affair with Jesus. He pours his love into us. He focuses his affections upon us. And we come to love him more and more and more with our whole being. So how? How do we more and more pursue the way of Mary and get rid of the way of Martha? I want to close just with a couple of practical admonitions for myself and for you. Um... None of these are new or groundbreaking. Rather, they're reminders and challenges and encouragements for us as we seek this week to follow the way of Mary, to be disciples, to be with Jesus. What does that look like? How can we do it? Three things. First, following the way of Mary involves an ongoing experience in the freedom and the power of the gospel. What makes you want to sit still at the feet of Jesus Christ? What is going to make you Want to do it. Because don't make any mistake. You're not going to do it if you don't want to. You're not going to do it if it's not something you desire. You will find an excuse. We're masters at finding excuses. I've got to drop off the dry. What kind of excuses? I've got to drop off the dry cleaning. But we make it. We make it. So what's going to make us want to sit at the feet of Jesus and be with him and know him? It's an encounter with his love. Have you encountered the love of Jesus? Psalm 37, verse 4 says, Delight yourselves in the Lord. Delight yourselves in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your hearts. Now, that's not a way uh, of saying that we can manipulate God into giving us what we want by delighting in him. Rather, it's saying that delighting in God occurs as we are receiving by faith God's delight in us. Do you know how much God delights in you? you know how much God delights in you? Zephaniah, this unknown Old Testament prophet, says this. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. We sing to God here on Sundays, but the gospel tells us that God in his delight for us sings over us. The love of God for you, his delight for you, is so rich that he gave you his son. He gave you Jesus, the word, and the son of God, the beloved of the father. He came down and he took our shame and he took our sin on the cross. And he restores us freely by grace to fellowship with the father. And he gives us a new identity and he makes us a part of a new family as sons and daughters of God. And he takes away our status of condemnation and he justifies us freely by grace. Jesus rescues us from hopelessness and darkness and foolishness and brings us into his light. He brings us into his life. And the love of God for you, friends, his delight for you is is so rich that he didn't just give you Jesus, he gave you his spirit. The Spirit of God abides with you now and dwells with you now. He prays for you. He prays with you. He pleads with God for you. He leads you and he guides you all the time. Even when you don't sense him, he's right there with you. Continuing the work of salvation. Keeping you from falling away. Keeping you near Jesus. He speaks to you through the scripture. He speaks to you through prayer. God delights in us so much that he gives us his son and he gives us his spirit that we might have fellowship and communion and free favor with the fullness of who God is. Ultimately, it's, that's the gospel. The, the gospel is that God gave us himself. God gave us himself in the cross of Jesus and in the sending of his spirit so that we might live in him with perfect joy and love forever. Now, when you believe that, When you rest in that, when you marinate in that, that's what leads to the way of Mary. That's what leads to wanting to sit at the feet of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. So one way we practice the way of Mary is by resting and rejoicing in the good news of the gospel again and again and again. That's what we're doing right here, friends. A second way, a second way to follow the way of Mary is practicing Sabbath. Practicing Sabbath. I don't know if you know this, but there are ten commandments that God gives. In Exodus 20, there's ten, and this is the fourth one. The Lord says, through Moses, Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So what is Sabbath? Sabbath is more than a day off. Sabbath is a way we stay close to and responsive to God. At regular intervals, we all need to quit our work and contemplate His work. We need to quit talking to each other and listen to Him. And God knows we need this, and God has given us a rhythm for this in the Sabbath. So one day out of every seven, for thousands of years, God has commanded and asked His people to the privilege of Sabbath, of rest. Sabbath is a way we reorient our fragmented, disoriented lives. And there's big two big things we do on the Sabbath. We worship with God's people, and we rest. So can I be very practical with you to follow the way of Mary, to sit at the feet of Jesus, to grow in your love for Christ, to be a more mature disciple. You need to do two things. You need to show up to church on Sunday. You need to show up. You need to experience the presence and the power of Jesus here with God's people. It was never intended for you to experience this solo only. It was intended for you to experience this in communion with others. You can't do this alone. So come to worship. And then the second thing that God asks you to do in practicing Sabbath is to rest. Sabbath means to quit. Sabbath means take a break. Cool it. Keeping the Sabbath then requires of you deliberate action. Because the Sabbath often feels like an interruption. It it feels like an interference with our routines. And that's when we're turning back into Martha, right? It challenges assumptions that we have built over long periods of time that our daily work is indispensable to making the world go. Listen to Eugene Peterson. He says, Sabbath-keeping is quieting the internal noise so we hear the still, small voice of our Lord. Removing the distractions of pride so we discern the presence of Christ. So, very practically speaking, one thing I, as your pastor, lovingly encourage you to do to keep the Sabbath on Sundays is to go to the grocery store on Saturday. Uh, Finish your homework on Saturday. Do the things you need to do on Saturday or on Friday stay up a little bit later, or stop that appointment so that you can get stuff that you need to get done, so that Sunday can be a day for you to reorient your life around Jesus. It can be a day for you to worship and to rest. If you aren't doing that, if you don't have that habit, you can start small by thinking about what are the things I feel like I have to do on Sundays, and if I don't do these things on Sunday, I'm not going to be ready for Monday. Well, first of all, you can probably humble yourself before the Lord and realize that this world does not revolve around you completing your to-do list. And secondly, you can start just to chop those items off and move them to different parts of your week, so that on Sunday you can have time with Jesus, you can rest with your family, you can sleep a little later, you can take a nap, you can do whatever is relaxing and enjoyable to you. Take a walk outside once it's below 95, (laughs) and cool down with the Lord. However the Lord has wired you to rest Is something that you should work throughout the week so that you can do on Sundays. So practice Sabbath. Rejoice in the gospel. Last thing, then we're done. To follow the way of Mary, we have to learn to pray. We have to learn to pray. We have to learn to read the word, but specifically to pray. I think that's what Mary's about here. She's listening to Jesus' teaching, and she's being with Jesus. We listen to Jesus' teaching on Sunday through the scripture. We listen to Jesus' teaching when we read the Bible but we have to learn to sit with Jesus, to hear him speak to us, and to go to him in prayer. It's so hard for us. I want to encourage you to start with five minutes. If this isn't a regular habit in your life, get up five minutes earlier. Paul Hahn, a couple of weeks ago, was here and he preached for us. One of the things Paul said that has stuck with me and it stuck with Mary Ann is that he finds time each day to literally fall down on his face, on the floor before Jesus. I think there's something powerful and provocative about that. Our physical presence, our physical posture matters before God. And if you don't know how to do that, if you don't have any sort of habits or rhythms, then let me give you a couple of resources. I mentioned before the Daily Liturgy podcast. If you're a podcast person, you can listen to that after you take the kids to school when you're going to work. It's about 12 minutes. It's from our friends at Coram Deo Church in Omaha, a sister church in Acts 29. They read you the scripture. They'll do a confession of sin. They'll pray. And it's a great way for you to just be with the Lord. If you don't know how to read your Bible well, then get a Bible reading program. Listen, you can Google, you know, how to fix my bathtub drain. If you can do that, you can Google how to read the Bible. Get me a daily Bible plan. You probably shouldn't Google that, actually. Just listen to me, okay? Get a daily Bible plan. If you have a Bible, almost certainly in the back, there's going to be multiple plans. And just go through it each day. That's why God's people over the centuries have developed things like the daily office and the book of common prayer from other traditions. Those are intended to help Christians cumulatively together go before the Lord and seek him in prayer. I guess the last thing I want to say to you is that you just need to do something. I'm calling you and I'm calling myself to do something about this. The reason is that spiritual disciplines are the road. They're the pathway to being with Jesus. They're the pathway to following the way of Mary. Now, that's not opposed to grace, Don't call me a legalist because I'm telling you, you need to pray and read your Bible. Don't do it. Discipline is not opposed to grace. Discipline flows out of grace. And grace brings discipline. So start with five minutes. Listen to John Owen. Constancy in this duty will give ability for it. Those who conscientiously abide in its performance shall increase in light wisdom and experiment, experience, until they are able to manage it with great success. In other words, what he's saying is, start slow, start small, and do it even when you don't feel like it, and over time, you'll get better at it. You'll become a practitioner of prayer and a practitioner of God's word. So following the way of Mary is what makes mature disciples. I think that's what Jesus is saying to us in this story. It's what Jesus is calling us to here. Last thing, and we'll finish. I I was reading again this week this very famous old illustration from Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century pastor in the United States. And uh, he talks about how there's two ways we can know that honey is sweet. You can know honey is sweet like in your head. If you've read a book about honey, or if you've studied the, the chemical breakdown of honey, you can know intellectually honey is sweet. That's one way you can know. But you can also know that honey is sweet by tasting it, right? By experiencing honey. So Martha in this story is the rational mind who knows intellectually that honey is sweet. But Mary in this story is the sensing tongue who's tasted honey. And Edwards says, when you move from just mentally knowing about the sweetness of honey to directly tasting it, you say, I knew it was sweet, but I didn't realize it was sweet. I knew it tasted good, but I didn't realize how good it was. I knew, but I didn't know. It's the same with God. You can know God, and you can know God. You can delight in God and recite to me the catechism, and you can delight in God by being in his presence as he sings over you with his love. One is the way of Martha. The other is the way of Mary. Which path are you on? Let's pray.